Let's talk about the plague of pornography for just a minute. Wow. This is one of the biggest issues that so many deal with in these latter days, but few talk about it or even know how to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, it's usually in a private setting with a leader who is expected to know how to navigate struggles with pornography. Thankfully, Leading Saints has put together a remarkable resource called Liberating Saints. It's a virtual library with 25 plus presentations focused on helping leaders be better prepared to help someone overcome struggles with pornography. We cover topics like how to minimize shame in the bishop's office, how to talk with children about pornography, and even how to talk about female pornography use in Relief Society. If you'd like to review the Liberating Saints library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and I've been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Leading Saints. And in this episode, I'm excited to welcome back two former guests of the podcast, one being Chris Raleigh. You'll remember him not too long ago. We recorded the episode when the stake president struggles with pornography. And Chris tells his story about going through uh, leadership and uh, even being a seminary teacher while struggling with pornography for many years and how he reconciled that, found recovery. And, and he actually got a lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback about that his story and inspiring and whatnot. And many people asked him, yeah, Chris, I mean, we get that you reached recovery, but what does recovery actually look like? What are the components that you put in a place in order to find consistency in not just being in sobriety, but being in recovery. And so Chris reached out to me and said, hey, Kurt, I think we should do another interview. But this time I want to invite on with us Stephen Croshaw. Now, Stephen, I actually interviewed Stephen and his wife, Real, many, many years ago. It's probably in the first 100 episodes of, of Leading Saints back when I had no clue what I was doing. But nonetheless, we recorded it. But Stephen is a remarkable force in the world of recovery. Very well-known name, He's the founder of SA Lifeline, which is a foundation, a 501c3 organization dedicated to recovering individuals and healing families from the effects of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. Stephen's got a great perspective, has his own story of recovery that's inspiring to hear, and has helped hundreds and hundreds of families and individuals find recovery. And so we want to just get in a room record about the concept of recovery. What does it look like? What does it take? What are some places where church leaders can start to help people find that recovery, where to put the focus and whatnot? Now, here's the other component. I mean, as a podcaster, these these are bound to happen after doing hundreds of episodes, but 
We recorded about 25, 30 minutes when my recorder crashed. The power was gone. I tried to see if the files were there. The files were not there. So we had to start from the beginning and record. I actually got a whole new recording uh, set up out and began to record. So the first 30 minutes or so is sort of a rehash of things that we just said 30 minutes earlier. But then we get into phenomenal discussion and cover many components and we get into everything from, you know, meeting with the bishop, restricting ordinances. How do people begin to find recovery with resources from 12 steps groups, whether that's uh, ARP groups or other groups? So hopefully this gives leaders a better idea of where to begin to help individuals. And of course, uh, check out our Liberating Saints library, which everybody can gain access to. I probably mentioned at the beginning of this episode at leadingsaints.org slash 14. You can really jump into hours and hours of resources to help you as church leaders reach out and uh, minister to those who are trying to overcome a sexual addiction. So here is my interview with Chris Raleigh and Stephen Croshaw. All right. Well, I just experienced the podcast nightmare and we had a great podcast going 25 minutes in and it crashed. And so we've had a good rehearsal. I'm here today with uh, Chris Raleigh. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. And Stephen Croshaw. Welcome. <laughs> welcome back. Stephen. Glad to be here. <laughs> and Stephen, we j- you just gave your story again. I apologize so much. I'm just like uh, dying slowly inside here. But Chris, you were on the podcast a few yeah. months ago and in yeah. um, the when the stake president struggles with pornography, that was the title. I'm sorry. I'm the marketing guy. I had to pick that title. Maybe not the one you'd pick, but uh, it got the clicks. You know, we need people to click and hear your story, but what's it been since you, we recorded that? Well, that title did get people's attention. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think it's been downloaded lots and lots of times. I was grateful for the opportunity to share my story uh, with you back. It was published in February, I think on the 5th of this year. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. People have expressed their appreciation for my willingness to tell the story. It is scary to tell your story in that setting. But, and then my wife teases me now because she says, you know, if you ever go in there, whether it's the doctor or the bank, and I'm gone longer than I should be, well, he's telling his story. <laughs> so, but, but every time I do, the response has been very similar. Like, wow, if they haven't struggled themselves with addiction issues, then certainly somebody they know has. And so one of the great things that have come out of this is the conversations in the comments. And I also did an interview with Saints Unscripted as well. And I think there's over two or 300 comments that have come from that. And I would respond in that setting and respond to those comments. And the thing that I love about this is that it's starting a conversation. And unless we talk about it, it's status quo, right? We're not, we're not progressing. And so if my hope is, is that if I'm willing to talk about this and people see that, wow, well, if he's willing to talk about it, then maybe I can have the courage to talk about it because addiction lives in the dark. It lives in secrecy. And if you bring it into the light of Christ, it cannot survive. And so we have to do that. But to do that comes at a cost because of the shame associated with this this topic of sexual intimacy. But, you know, it's interesting. I was reading this week in both the book of Genesis and the book of Moses, and it describes Adam and Eve, you know, going through the garden unashamed. And then in the next chapter, in the very first verse of that chapter, Satan's introduced. 
And he's the one who says, oh, you should cover yourself. You should be embarrassed. You should hide. And Adam and Eve did exactly what he told them to do. They hid. And we've been doing it ever since. And so I think it's so critical that we, we start this conversation. And, and we'll put this in the show notes, but I've created a Facebook group entitled, I Am Finally Free, all one word. And as well as a, a website where I've secured the domain, IamFinallyFree.com. And I want this conversation to continue. And that's why I was very excited when you invited us, Kurt, to tell this story. The other thing that came out of me telling that story was the question, what does recovery look like? Yeah. And that's why you reached out to me. So we yeah. got we to gotta dive more into that, right? Yeah. Because I talk about recovery in there and I certainly know my story, but people were very anxious to know, well, what did you do? What does it look like? And so I started thinking about that. And then Stephen is a, a dear friend of mine and I love him very much. In fact, we were in the same Friday morning 12-step group and Stephen would talk about his sobriety. Is that where you two met? Yeah. And through my brother too, who's in recovery as well. But I thought, man, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. It is possible. People can and do every day learn how to manage this with complete sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, maybe, uh, I know you've done it once before, but maybe put yourself in context and tell a little about your story and you can go through every detail you just did and, and the audience will, will appreciate it. So, Well, it is great to have the opportunity to tell my story and we did have a bit of a dress rehearsal. That's good. Good. <laughs> and I, I'm pleased to be here with Chris. We did meet in, in a group for recovery and uh, I'm there. I share my story often in that safe environment. I um, also share my story publicly and I have for many years, going on about 14 years, have sh shared my story publicly as part of the, my work of recovery and also part of the uh, work that my wife and I do with our foundation that helps people find resources for recovery. So my story is goes way back to my early childhood. At age six, I found a pornographic magazine in my brother's chest of drawers. He was nine years older than me. And so I was age six. This was 1958. So you can do the arithmetic and see how old I am. Mm -hmm. But I have, um, I've been around the block with this issue for majority of my life. We'll say going on six, seven decades. So my understanding of this issue didn't really begin until in earnest until 17 years ago. Let's go back to my childhood. I found this magazine, looked at it, was very intrigued by it. I think experienced some euphoria, which is common for an introduction to pornography. Knew it was wrong and gave the magazine to my mother. I don't recall any more from that experience. I think if she had said something to me, I would recall that. But I believe she took the magazine and simply sent me on my way. And she may have said, thank you for giving this to me. It's not a good thing. She may have said that I don't recall. My intrigue of finding pornography continued, and I, I did and was able to find uh, magazines in my brother's car and any stuff going forward. And it was, a, um, it was just kind of an interesting experience for me. I discovered that it was very euphoric. As I looked at the magazines, I hid it from that point forward. Didn't ever talk to anybody about it going forward because I recognized that it was wrong, but I wanted to do it. I discovered masturbation at about age 11. I believe, and essentially was introduced to the idea by a friend. Didn't, so it was an experience that I was then combining pornography with masturbation, which 
which really is a very, which is very imprinting in my brain. So I continued in the behavior, didn't talk to anybody about it until my latter teens when I recognized that I really needed to stop and I wanted to be worthy for various callings and responsibilities that I had and and knew it was wrong. So I had confessed generally to a bishop with an honest heart, wanting and thinking that I could stop. And his advice, if I recall correctly, was, you're right, don't do that anymore. It's not a good thing. And so thank you for coming and confessing and talking to me about it. And don't do that. It's just not right. So that was the kind of experience that I had in my youth. I met my wife when I was 21. I was working out of state. My wife was a student at Montana State University. When I met her first, I was incredibly drawn to her, an incredible woman, incredible lady. And so we dated, became engaged, and were married. Prior to our marriage, I went feeling like I needed to talk to to my bishop about my behaviors of the past because I was confused about whether I should tell her or not. So I went to my bishop at the time, explained the circumstances that I was engaged. We were, I hadn't talked to my fiance about my past behaviors. I was really confused about whether I should talk to her about it. The bishop asked me if I had stopped the behavior, if I was repented, if I had repented of those those sins that I'd participated in. And in my heart, I had. I had repented and I would I had turned away from the behaviors. And so with some consideration, he said, I, I don't think you'll need to tell her. That really was what I wanted to hear. I did not want to tell her. Yeah, I was sure. afraid of what that might mean. So I didn't tell her. And I don't know, frankly, I, I've often thought of that. And my wife and I have spoken about it. Uh, it was a, it was a disservice to her, but that at the time I felt like was the right thing to do, and I felt like the bishop had told me that to be the case. So I'm not going to go back and second guess that. However, in today's circumstances in the world today, I certainly would not give that advice to a young couple yeah. to not talk about honestly what's been going on in your life. And so in context with that, if those who are participating in this behavior prior to marriage are willing to be honest about it and honestly work recovery and know what that means in preparation of marriage, they will be far, far ahead, especially going into a marriage, not disclosing. I think later on it will come back and be a very serious problem in the marriage. That has been my case. So I, we were married and I, my work put me on the road often. I traveled. So I was looking at pornography. I was masturbating. And over a period of years, I learned that I could act out by going to adult establishments, which I did. And that eventually led me into, by age, about age 35, to acting out with prostitutes. So as a traveling man, I had progressed in my behaviors and my use of pornography, masturbation to adult establishments, and finally to prostitution, all the time hiding all of my behavior, not talking about them with anyone, including my wife or my priesthood leaders. I was a family man. I had a number of children. I have five children by this time. I had important callings in the church, priesthood callings. Fortunately, I was not, had not been called to be a judge in Israel, but I was serving and I was serving with feeling like I'm a hypocrite in doing so. At age 37, I determined I, I absolutely could not continue in the double life. I came forward with an honest desire to stop the behavior, get honest. And so I did. I told my wife everything, and it was a shock to her. I told my bishop and my stake president everything, 
And at that time, it was, I guess I should say I was serving on the high council at that time. Mm. And it was a shock to my stake president. And it was necessary for me to participate, to be invited to participate in a disciplinary council, which I did. So we went through, I went through the disciplinary council and the advice from the stake president, who was a wonderful and incredible man. This was many years ago. He's now deceased. But his advice was to not look back, to move forward in my life, repentant, and put this behind me. Meaning never discuss this again. You don't need to bring it up. Let's just put it away and move on. Exactly. Yeah. Don't look back. Don't talk about it. And frankly, I felt strongly that that was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go back to this. I wanted to move forward in my life. Now, my wife at that point was, she was experiencing the trauma of having been betrayed, but did not know that, nor did I, nor did my priesthood leaders. And so sadly, she wasn't given any help except from a wonderful neighbor who was the bishop's wife who came and, and we did disclose to her. And she was the angel that God sent to help her. And I will forever be grateful to her for her wisdom and her willingness to serve. Yeah. And that's a concept that we need to speak more and more about, but this concept of betrayal trauma that especially the spouses, you know, which is more often than not uh, the wife in the relationship. And uh, we've had other episodes on that, but nonetheless, it's important dynamic that's happening, even though we may kind of right. go past and so it. So you know? I realized that this conversation is more of my story. The fact that I am married and my wife has gone through this with me is the story of our relationship. And so as you go forward in, in other opportunities, give more attention or some attention to betrayal trauma, because it is equally as important as those who are dealing with the challenges right. of unwanted sexual behavior. Yeah. Can I add something here too? I completely agree. My former spouse, you know, had this question. She said, you know, apparently my husband has gone to multiple bishops over the course of our marriage and sought help. How come I was never consulted? How come I was never brought into that conversation? And so if I could say anything to any priest or leader out there, involve that spouse, make sure that she and her feelings are considered in this process. And whatever you do, do not suggest to her that she's responsible for his behavior because she's not. Right. And sometimes women experience secondary trauma because they're, they're somehow given the impression that, oh, if they, if they just took better care of themselves or if they did this or did that, it would solve the problem. And, And these two things are so different that it's critical that priest leaders understand that and never, ever give that poor woman the impression that somehow yeah. this is her fault. Because right. the fallacy is that, well, if I can just fix him, you know, get him back on track, then everybody's going to be happy. And, you know, I know that she's having our time, but it's because of him and we got to fix him. Right. And then you and, yeah, that's exactly. unintentionally miss her. And, you know, a bishop, a stake president, part of their responsibility is to help those through the repentance process. And a lot of focus is oftentimes given there, not recognizing that, Others who are harmed require as much help and attention, and especially as Chris so importantly reminded us, that to never give the impression that their behavior or their body shape or their sexuality in the bedroom or whatever Mm -hmm. is responsible for a man betraying the relationship. There is not where the responsibility lies. Some will use that as an excuse. Some men will, Mm -hmm. but that in my opinion, is 
is an excuse and yeah. not the truth. Nor is it her responsibility to make sure he's going to the meetings and reading the books and, you know, being accountable and all these things, right? That's maybe another place we yeah, that, want to. That's a very good insight. It's not her responsibility to lead my recovery. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, as I'm, my story progresses here, there I was, I was disfellowshipped in the council. And this and is when you're mid-30s, right? I'm in my mid-30s. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, and I have a young family of five children. My wife chooses to stay with me and she really works hard to be uh, committed to the relationship. I go three years, what I call white knuckle sober and not knowing or understanding what I was dealing with. I continued in the same routine of my business where I traveled a lot. So I was gone and sometimes for weeks at a time during this time, three years after this first disclosure, I viewed a pornographic magazine in a hotel, and that just absolutely started me down this pathway of going back to the behavior. And I knew that I should not do that, could not do that. I also felt like I wouldn't do it anymore, but I wasn't going to talk about it. So I didn't talk about it. I went on with my business responsibilities, my family responsibilities, and by that point going forward, some church responsibilities. But I hid the behavior. I went back to pornography. I went back to sex with self, which is correctly identified as masturbation. I then shortly thereafter just was on the same path, same trajectory, adult establishments, and finally on to prostitution. So there I am. And so I hid the behavior for seven years, completely hid it, didn't speak with anybody about it, and only acted out when I was on the road. That's Mm -hmm. the only time that I did. Mm -hmm. I found myself in a same situation where I felt so much shame so much pain that I was feeling and and I was not able to connect with my wife or my children. I knew that I was in distress and I felt like I have got to come forward again. And so I did. But previous to coming forward, I had tried a lot of different things to stop the behavior, including quitting my job, selling my interest in the company that I worked yeah. for, moved my family to a new city and thinking that if I get off the road, if I change my environment, I can stop this behavior on my own because I desperately did not want to come forward and get honest about it. I just wanted to stop. Yeah. Again, because the advice you got, put it behind you, right? So you kept putting it behind you, but yeah. you kept coming forward. That's exactly right. <laughs> stop this behavior. And I I just continued on that same idea that I could do it on my own. Yeah. That's so common. I work with hundreds of people now. Then the common feeling is I've just got to deal with this on my own. I can't come forward. There's too much yeah. shame associated with it. So anyway, I I come forward for the second time, 10 years later. So I'd been back involved in the behavior for seven years. My wife knew nothing of it. I had moved my family and I go through exactly the same circumstance. I am now again in front of a council confessing. And in this disciplinary council, now the advice that's given to me is that the spiritual aspect of your life needs to be strengthened. Strengthen your testimony. Read the scriptures. Pray. Don't. Don't continue down this pathway of behavior. Well, my wife's reaction was, I have got to help my husband deal with this problem. I'm going to help him. So she did. She really tried. She found a therapist. She found the books. In fact, she found multiple therapists. I participated in therapy. I read some of the books, but I let her read most of them and tell me what she found. And all of this time, I really was not accepting the responsibility, which was mine, for my own recovery. I let her do a lot of the work. And she was doing it, I believe, honestly, out of love and concern for the relationship. But 
in as I look back on it now, I also felt resentment that she was taking charge when it was really my responsibility, even though I wanted to mm-hmm. let her do it. That's a very difficult circumstance to find find yourself in, but I I allowed that to happen, and uh, so we went through that experience. I was my priesthood leaders. I felt like were kind, loving, and understanding, but not un, not understanding what I needed to do, nor giving me a, the advice that go out and participate in 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 working recovery in other areas besides scriptures and prayer. So I was out there doing that, and I was white knuckle sober for three more years. One thing that happened early on in that second time, and this is a critical thing, and this happens often with people that I work with. I was invited to go to a 12-step meeting, a Sexaholics Anonymous 12-step meeting, community-based program, which is actually excellent. And and, um, I went to the first meeting and heard a guy introduce himself as a grateful recovering sex addict. I was repulsed by that. I absolutely was judgmental. Anybody that would say that had to be really on the wrong path to identify as an addict, but then simply to say, I'm an addict, but I'm also grateful for my addiction. I could not relate. I was judgmental of the people in the group. Obviously, I didn't have humility. I went to four meetings, got the book, never went back. Hmm. So it was that was something that I also see with other people now that I work in recovery. They come and to a 12-step meeting, don't relate are rather judgmental and unwilling to find a sponsor and do the work. So they, they, they just go away. So I went seven years, excuse me, I went four more years, I apologize, seven years from that second disclosure, four more years past the time that I restarted the behavior and was relapsing. I was arrested on August 25th of 05 for picking up a prostitute. That was a life-changing experience. I will always remember the exact circumstances of where I was, how I felt. Everything about that is burned in my mind. I experienced incredible shame and tremendous fear with that experience. I wasn't acting out with a woman who was a prostitute. I picked her up, drove around the block with the intent to let her out. I had no money and I had no time. But the police were watching her, so they picked me up, gave me a ticket for loitering for the purpose of prostitution. So I had the misdemeanor ticket. I was incredibly shamed, and I was also fearing that this would lead to me being caught. So I went to an attorney the next day. He asked me questions. The main was, did you admit guilt? I said, no. He said, pay me $1,500. This will never be brought to trial, and you'll never see me again, or you'll never hear about this again. Mm -hmm. And I believed him. So you're in this cycle again of trying to cover it up. Let's just there I am bury this and, and nobody will need to know. I've escaped. Yeah. And so I was in that cycle. And for a moment, I felt relief leaving his office. I could not, however, as the days went by, it just became more and more burdensome to even think about the possibility that somebody's going to find out. So I just, I started to get more withdrawn and more withdrawn. So about two and a half weeks later, on the night of September 11th, which was a Sunday morning, September 11th is a Sunday morning, I had a what I considered to be one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. As I laid in bed contemplating my circumstances, I was filled with shame and fear and disgust for myself. I began to question my testimony. I began to ask, do I believe in God? I would ask myself that question over and over again. And I would try to convince myself, maybe I don't believe in God. And if I don't believe in God, all this stuff is for naught. What does it matter? 
I couldn't convince myself that I wasn't a believer. In fact, I became more convinced that I was a believer. As I asked myself the question, I became apparent that I was fearing man more than God. Mm. And I began to come to my senses of what am I doing? So in the middle of the night, it was late or early, early in the morning hours, I finally said, I am a believer. I know that God knows me and he's aware of me. I will tell my story to him at one point. Who am I kidding here? I cannot continue in this fear of man more than God. I decided at that moment that I would come forward the next morning by nine o'clock, which that hour, the idea that I would come forward by a specific time, I think was important because I delayed until just before the moment. I did tell my wife and I told the bishop before that nine o'clock hour, told the bishop I needed to talk to him. I told my wife I wouldn't be taking the sacrament. And that set all of the processes of recovery forward in my life at that moment. It had actually started back, I believe, when I was arrested. But I came to my senses early in the morning of September 11th when I decided to get honest. All of, all of recovery, all of the work of recovery, I've come to understand, is based upon the element of honesty. A softened heart and total honesty. Well, I had now gone through that experience, and I had also experienced the unmanageability and knew that my life was out of control. I recognized that I believed in God, and I had then submitted my will by being honest. I had actually done steps one, two, and three, not knowing it at the time. So that set everything in motion. Well, of course, there's another disciplinary council. This is my third. Mm. And, you know, I'm my wife at this point is now ready to leave me. She's ready to divorce, and justifiably so, certainly. So we're all is hanging in the balance of my marriage. By this time, I have seven children. I'm, I'm a businessman, successful business guy. And here I am, this, my church membership is in jeopardy. So I'm, here I am at another disciplinary council with my wife, undecided whether to stay in the marriage. And it was a positive, good experience for me, one which I was really ready for. I believe that I was prepared for that moment. I was completely honest in the council, um, men that I knew well, my stake president was my next door or across the street neighbor, an incredible man, my bishop, an incredible man and, and good friend. So here I was among friends, just some emotion here. And the stake president knew that it was time for me to be excommunicated. He knew that. And I knew that. And I was accepting of that opportunity. The thing that was most curious is my stake president, who was a cardiologist, said, Stephen, I don't know how to help you and your bishop doesn't know how to help you. God does. You go out and figure this out. I still, I still remember the moment that he said that to me, and I took it to heart. I have since rehearsed that experience with him. I've asked him, in fact, just I believe within the last year, President, do you remember that experience? And frankly, he, he really didn't. <laughs> yeah. I said, I know that you were inspired, that that was inspired instructions that were given to me to go out and figure this out. And so I did. I took it to heart. And I learned something in that, that I need everyone to understand that's working on this issue. That is, I am responsible for my own recovery. The problem is, I don't know what to do. I'm responsible, but I don't know what to do. And the challenge for a priesthood leader is, most generally, they don't either. They don't know what to do. They don't know what the processes are to, of surrender. They don't understand how to explain or help a person understand addiction. They don't know how to help the spouse oftentimes who's struggling with trauma. And so it's re I'm responsible to identify resources and then be willing to participate in them. So we come to this point in this conversation where here's all this behavior, all this water under the bridge, all this double life. 
And that's the that's really the only area in my life where I felt like I was completely out of balance. I had a successful family, an incredible wife, and a marriage where we related well. We shared a lot in common, a wonderful relationship. And I had a strong testimony, a wonderful relationship with family and friends and board members. But yet here I am, instructions to go figure this out. And so I did. I went and I, I started opening up and asking people for help. I asked my brother, who I didn't understand why he had spent so much time researching this on his own. He also had the issue that I had. I didn't know that. But he helped me identify another SA group, a Sexaholics Anonymous group that was 50 or 60 miles from my home, where a solid group of men were working recovery. He helped me identify a place where I might find a qualified therapist. I believe that that was God's hand in my life. So I did find a qualified therapist. And so my intent was, I will work my recovery. My hope was I could save my marriage. Yeah, I didn't know at the time if that could be possible, but I committed to the work. And so with this qualified therapist, on the first meeting that I went to, I told my story in more detail than I have here. He listened intently, didn't say much, turned to my wife after I'd finished, said, can you stay with him if he's in recovery? And my wife just absolutely could not believe that she was being asked that question. I should say that I had invited her, invited her to come to that therapy session. Mm-hmm. She was reluctant, but did come. But anyway, so he, he asked her that. She didn't know what to say, except that, how could I ever trust this man who's lied to me over decades, who has betrayed trust, who has essentially used me in many situations? How could I ever go back to this feeling of being able to trust him again? How would I ever know that he was in recovery? You asked me what it is. Could I stay with him if, I'm in re- if he's in recovery? Well, I don't even know what recovery looks like. His comment to her was, you will know. He was inspired to ask those questions of her. And that essentially gave her this feeling like, maybe I need to pause for just a moment and not pursue the divorce like I was feeling like I should. So she did. She paused and didn't pursue the divorce at the moment. My priesthood leader stayed with me throughout the process of repentance in very loving ways, met often with my bishop, probably every other week at first, met occasionally with the stake president. His time, of course, is very limited, but he spent time with me. I felt their love and concern. And at the same time now, I'm participating with a 12-step group where I find a sponsor. I'm understanding more about that I'm dealing with a behavioral addiction. I'm working with a therapist who gives me hope that recovery is possible, helps me understand that I'm, what I'm dealing with, and that I need to understand that shame is something that I need to set aside and look for ways that I can participate in recovery, recognizing that I am using my will, my agency, in a positive way to move forward, and that God is aware of me. That's all that I was then experiencing. So if I may, and I know I'm, yeah. I'm really talking a lot. No, you're good. You're I don't good. know if I can give you all these. But anyway, I have to tell you that in this time, between... That 17 plus 17 years ago experience. My wife and I started a foundation 13 years ago with the intent of helping people that are dealing with sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And we chose to do that because very few people are going to survive. Their marriage is not going to survive the type of trauma that our marriage went through. But we were able to meet the challenge initially by striving together. I took the responsibility for my recovery. But I'd like to describe to you, because now at this point, what does recovery take and what does it look like? And if I think about my story, 
at first required of me a willing heart. And God helped me come to my senses by being arrested. It took me a few days, a couple of weeks, to really come to my senses and be willing. But at that moment where I became willing on the night of September 11th to become honest, then God could look at me and look at my heart and say, okay, you are worthy of the help that you need because you're willing to be honest. So the first point that I must say that I learned is that radical honesty was what brought me out in, out of this shell of this confinement, this yeah. withdrawal. Please join us for part two of this podcast.